0: All of this was because of sin. All that we've just read and proclaimed, this dehumanizing suffering and death of the innocent man Jesus, the Son of God, this was for sin. That's the testimony of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, including the book of Hebrews, which we have been studying as a community together over the past couple of months. Its perspective on what we've just read is this, chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This death was a sacrifice, and it was a sacrifice for sin. Or as it says in Hebrews 9, to put away sin or to deal with sin. So I want us to consider a little bit more of what this means. That this was all for sin. Sin has two primary effects. The first is universally acknowledged and universally experienced. It is the vandalism of shalom. I know we have some kids among us, including my own this evening, in a way that we normally don't. Vandalism, kids, is a big word, but if you've ever been building something like some Legos or a tower of blocks in your house, and your brother or sister comes up and knocks it over or steps on it, that's vandalism. It's messing up the good thing that you were building. It's a distortion A messing up of this wholesome world of peace and flourishing that God has made. In his book on sin, Cornelius Plantinga titles his first chapter, The Vandalism of Shalom. This messing up of the good that God has created. Sin has quite literally messed up everything and affected everything on the individual and interpersonal level. At the level of our hearts, our relationships, work, our desires, sex, how we relate to authority, our bodies. And it's messed up everything on the corporate and systemic level. That is, our governments, our schools, our businesses, our communities, our markets, and on and on. The American writer and comedian A. Whitney Brown has said this of human history. Any good history book is mainly just a long list of mistakes, complete with names and dates. It's very embarrassing. And we know this. We we feel this every day. We live this. Just think about this last week in your own life. The words, actions, or thoughts that you've willfully engaged in and entertained. Think about it over the last month or over the last year. Or think about it in light of our collective life as a country and around the globe. The main character in Wallace Stegner's novel Crossing to Safety, Larry Morgan, says at one point, the wicked and the unhappy always stole the show because sin and suffering were the most universal human experiences. And we know this. We live this. We dwell in a world of sin, a world That vandalizes God's good intentions for His creation and for life. And inevitably, as we live in this world, we've all been vandalized. And we are all guilty vandals. Good ones, actually. Even vandals against our own bodies. When she was a young woman and taken to jail, Dorothy Day, at a cell in Chicago. She was right next to a drug addict who was going through withdrawal, and she observed this. To see the human beings racked by their own will made one feel the depth of the disorder of the world. We can't escape this disorder and the guilt and the pain and the shame that it inflicts upon every one of us. The second effect is less universally acknowledged, but from a Christian perspective, more tragic and more basic. It is, of course, connected to the first effect of sin, but also distinct from it in that it becomes its own thing. And this second effect is being cut off from the life-giving presence of God. Remember back in the garden, long ago, after sinning, Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, losing access to the presence of God who walked with them in the garden because of the reality of their sin. This is sin's most tragic consequence. To be in sin, writes Fleming Rutledge in her 2017 book, The Crucifixion, to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something very much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet. God is as necessary to you and to me as oxygen. And this is as true as the undeniable vandalism of shalom that we witness and experience all around us. But sin keeps us from him. It banishes us from his presence. Now, there's a secular and a religious response to losing God to the second effect of sin, which is, again, related to the first. From a secular perspective, we actually don't seem to care that much that we've lost God. The Enlightenment, by and large, viewed God as a barrier to human flourishing. We rejected him outright, or, as in deism, we consigned him to the meaningless margins of the universe. And in the Enlightenment's wake, we still live in a secular age. That means that we take the gifts, but leave the giver behind. or merely give him a few passing thoughts each year. This is one of the ways that sin has clouded our judgment. It's terribly unoriginal and terribly ineffective, but we readily exchange God for the things that he has made. And then, left to ourselves, because that's all that's left, and buoyed by an irrational belief in ourselves, who else are we going to believe in at this point? We begin to build our towers, We believe that we can wipe away the vandalism of the world through science, technology, education, and hard work. But like the orange line corridors that I see daily on my way to the church office, the vandalism that is painted over inevitably reappears in new colors and new variations and with new symbols. A divorce. The threat of war the betrayal of a friend, an indulgence of lust or greed, racism, the list goes on and on. If we're honest, the myth of human progress is peculiarly circular. From the religious perspective, this religious response, our response to the loss of God can be to claw our way back to him through moral rectitude and unflinching unflinching devotion. Perhaps we think through our own striving, we can cleanse ourselves and regain him whom we have lost but so desperately need. We will pay for our sins. But this obviously is a crushing burden that is far too great for any human being to bear. And sin, in any case, is far too strong for us. So that as we're paying for sin's past, we're committing sin's present and thinking about sins in the future. The honest among us as a human race know this. Consider for a moment these two witnesses from the East. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary in India in the early 20th century. And a young Jain student wrote to him at one point, And note that a key principle of Jainism is that true perception, true and right knowledge, and true and right conduct are the keys to human liberation. And this is what that young student wrote to this Methodist missionary. I have deep faith in my own religion. I believe it to be entirely true. But I need not be ashamed to tell you that it exacts unflinching duty and knows no grace. Philosophically, it's all right. You may believe, according to it, that the power behind all things is supremely just and indifferent. But we err. We know not why. We are led on, as it were, on the waves of sin and mistakes. There are powers too great for our frail weaknesses, for our frail being. And I wish, then, that there were a God who would be kind to me, who would feel my weaknesses, and would extricate me from the meshes of sin temptation. Or consider Gandhi's words from the opening pages of his autobiography. For it is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him who, I, who, as I fully know, governs every breath of my life and whose offspring I am. I know that it is the evil passions within that keep me so far from him, and yet I cannot get away from them. I know it's the evil passions within that keep me so far from Him, And yet, I cannot get away from them. They're too strong for me. They're too present to me. Our efforts, that is, be they secular or religious, are futile. Try as we might, we cannot expel our demons. We cannot escape sin and its effects. We cannot save ourselves. Sin was and sin is too strong for you and for me but it's not too strong for him. This man suffering on the cross. That seems odd to say, doesn't it, when he's hanging on a cross, gasping, humiliated, forsaken, betrayed, in the position that seems to be the most obvious place of defeat and despair that one could ever be in. But think about it. At the outset of his ministry, this Jesus resisted the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. Throughout his ministry, he cast out demons from one man and one woman and so on and so forth again and again. So now, as he's come to this point, has he suddenly lost his power? Has he miscalculated? It's obviously quite to the contrary. The cross is is the very means by which his power and love are expressed. Here is where the the longing of that sincere young Jane student in the early 20th century comes true. There is a God who is kind to us. Who feels our weaknesses and extricates us from the meshes of sin and temptation. Here is where Jesus loves us, John says in John 13, 1, to the end, to the uttermost. Here is where the divine initiative does for us what no human initiative or effort could ever accomplish or do. This is no accident, the cross. This moment was the moment that Jesus, is, Jesus had always planned to enter into, and his father had always willed for him to take up. In chapter 10 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes it from me, he says, but I, I, I lay it down of my own accord. Or in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, but for this purpose, Jesus says, I have come to this hour. And the hour in John's gospel is the hour of his crucifixion. It's the hour of his death. He says, That's why I came. Or in Hebrews 10, quoting Psalm 40, Behold, I have come to do your will. And the will of the Father and the will of the Son was to deal with sin and its effects here at the cross once and for all, and so make a way for the recreation and renewal of vandalized humanity and vandalized creation. Divine effort and initiative alone. And who could have thought of the cross, really, but God? None of us, none of his followers would have thought of this idea. But divine effort and divine initiative alone will work where human effort falls far too short. And this addresses the effects of sin. With regard to the vandalism of Shalom, the chief vandal in all his dominion, who had made us his slaves, is defeated in this moment at the cross. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, the writer expresses this wonderful truth. He says, you know, Jesus took on our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free all those who in their lives were held in slavery. In this death, evil is defeated, and the devil is cast out, as Jesus says in John 12, which means that we, who are evil's slaves and slaves of this power, can be liberated. We couldn't liberate ourselves, we couldn't defeat the power, we couldn't overcome the power, but Jesus did, and that's why he came, to liberate us from the power of sin, and to cleanse us from our guilt and our shame. That's Jesus in John 13, if you read this yesterday on Monday Thursday, washing his disciples' feet and saying to Peter, unless I wash you, Peter, you will have no part with me. We have been sanctified, Hebrews 10 says, perfected. That is made a ready, complete, and suitable partner for God, the holy God, and above else. We are forgiven. Verse 17 of Hebrews 10, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Quoting Jeremiah 31, this great passage about the new covenant. Because of the once for all sacrifice for sins that Jesus has made, because of his death, guilty vandals like you and me are liberated and cleansed and free now to be vandals no more, but stewards, restorers, and reconcilers. This is the work that God has done. All that God has done. This is what he has done, not what we have done. And what does Jesus say in those beautiful words in John 19.30 as he hangs and breathes his last? He says, it is finished. The work is done. Sin has been defeated. The devil has been cast out. The captives have been liberated and set free. Once and for all. You can add nothing to it. Try as you might. Wear yourself out as you might. You can't add anything to this work that has been completed. You can't make it any more effective for you than it already is. Here is true rest, then, and true peace and true joy. It's absolutely necessary for us to rest in the event of Good Friday in order to live the Christian life. That's the point of the book of Hebrews, is to run the race that God has put before you with endurance to get to the finish line. Why then is this work of Jesus on the cross, this sacrifice of the great high priest, so central in his exposition in the middle of this letter? It's because he knows we must understand the completeness, the once for all nature of this, the fact that it has been finished and nothing can be added to it in order for us to walk forward by faith, to be liberated and free, If we don't think it's finished, and it's easy to think that when you think about your own life over the last week, when I think about mine. But when we don't think it's finished, it becomes a burden that crushes us. It's under that it is finished banner that we are quite literally set free. released, and put at rest. And we, the the banished vandals, are suddenly now brought back to God, not as a disappointed father who's scolding us as we return, but as the father who shamed himself before all the village as he pulled up his robes and ran to the edge of the city to meet the rebellious son the one who had dragged his name through the mud, the one who would spent the inheritance, that father, that's the one who receives us back now into his presence. We are restored to his life-giving presence. And that's where the writer turns in Hebrews 10, 19, having been liberated and forgiven and cleansed by the once-for-all sacrifice, we now, he says, have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's the exhortation. Let us enter in the way that our forerunner has gone before us. He's now at the right hand of God, having performed the work, having completed the work. Now we, those who have been forgiven, those who have been liberated, those who have been cleansed, now we have an open highway to come back to him, to be in the presence of the one who for us is life itself, without whom we cannot live. Or flourish. And what Hebrews is trying to say is, draw near to him. In light of the finished work of Calvary, draw near to him. Come with confidence that your sins have been cleansed, that your conscience has been made clean, that your body has been washed, that you are now ritually pure and able to be in the presence of the Almighty God who made you. To whom you belong. What does Jesus say is eternal life? John 17, 3. It is to know the only true God. That word for know is a deep word of intimacy. A knowing that goes deep. An intertwining. Becoming part of. That's what we're invited into because of this day. Sin is defeated once and for all. The victory has been won, and we will look at its evidence tomorrow night and Sunday morning. And we are brought back into his presence as a holy people. I want you to draw near we're going to take a couple of minutes in silence in reflecting on God's word. Don't stay away. Don't try to bring your own contribution to the work. But run. Run down the open path not as one who has a lot to be ashamed of and guilty over because that's been dealt with, brothers and sisters. And we're free to run uninhibited, unencumbered, with full confidence that we can be in his presence, that we can know him, enjoy him, and delight in him. Sin has been defeated. Its effects have been overcome, Draw near to him.